0: Well, it's time now to continue our journey through the Book of Acts. And for those who are, again, those who are new here, uh, for the last several months now, and going right through to the end of January, we are taking a journey right through the, the Book of Acts, taking it chapter by chapter, week by week, right through the whole thing. And the reason we're doing this is because we want to try and understand what was it, it was that drove and what was it that made the early church That Jesus had established so effective. And so we've called this series Devoted Ordinary People, Extraordinary God. And the reason we've called it Devoted is because the word comes from a key verse, a key passage that we've selected for this whole series, which we have up here in our banner, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 47. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And what was the result? And the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. And so here at Kingsliff Church, we want to be people who are devoted to prayer, people who are devoted to the scriptures, people who are devoted to fellowship, to the breaking of, prayer, of bread, and ultimately, people who are devoted to Jesus. Now this week, we're up to Acts chapter 11, and this is, in many ways, the last chapter in a transition that we're taking place that's taking place in the book of Acts, between the, the gospel being primarily preached to the Jews and then the switch, the transition to it being preached to the Gentiles. And so in Acts chapter 7, we had the, the killing of Stephen. In Acts chapter 8, we had Philip resulting from that persecution, going out and spreading the gospel in places such as Samaria and the Ethiopian man. In chapter 9, we see the conversion of Saul. And then in chapter 10, we see Peter, which Daniel did a great sermon last week, On this we see Peter had this vision from God showing him that there is no person who is unclean or common but the gospel message is to go to every single person in the whole world. So Acts chapter 11 can be divided up into two main sections. The first section we simply see Peter recounting and explaining the experience in the previous chapter. So that's about him having the vision, the experience with Cornelius and since we had a whole sermon on that last week We're going to spend essentially no time on that this week. The second half is where we're really going to focus our attention on. And this is verses 19 to 13. And here we see the start of a brand new church in Antioch. Now, I believe that this second half of this chapter is particularly relevant for where we are um, at at this present moment as a church. Because we're about to launch, and Pastor David and Pastor Daniel talked about this last weekend a brand new church campus in Tweed. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the, um, some of the, one of the, an effective church plant that's gone before us in Antioch. We're going to see some of the things that made this church effective, some of the things that drove this church. And, at, and we're going to see what can we learn, what are some principles that we can learn from the church in Antioch that we can apply to our ministry in the church campus in Tweed, that we can apply to our ministry here in Kingscliff Church, and that we can apply to our own personal lives as well. And so that's sort of where we're heading. And we're going to end up with five things that the church in Antioch was built upon. So if you forget everything that I talk about this morning, just try to remember these five things, because if you remember these five things, you remember basically the whole of my message. Now, the very first one is that the church in Antioch was built upon ordinary people. Turn with me to Acts chapter 11 and verse... 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And we're going to be... All the verses that are from Acts 11 we'll be reading in the the Bibles, and other verses you're welcome to turn to them, but that will be also on the screen. Now, Acts chapter 11, verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is the, the Greeks, the, the, no, the, the non-Jews, the, the Gentiles. Um, they spoke to Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So here we see, as I was saying, there was this transition that take, took place. Stephen was killed, and then as a result of that, there was this great persecution that broke forth, and um, led by Saul. And he was racing around in Jerusalem in the church, dragging um, the believers out of their houses and putting them in prison. And this resulted in many of these, the, basically 5,000 people at least, being spread all across um, the surrounding areas. And this is, um, this is, how, this is the context of our, our passage this morning. Now those three primary places that it mentioned that they went to that we read just then. The first one, now I'm not sure if you can see on that... Map up there, but the first place they went to was Phoenicia, which is that section there. So that's a strip of coast about 100 miles long on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, And so some of the people they fled to Phoenicia. Another place where some of the people fled to was this island called Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is going to again become significant as we journey through the book of Acts, Um, but some of them went to Cyprus. But the place that's of particular importance is those who fled to Antioch. Now, there are two Antiochs that appear in the book of Acts, but this is Syrian Antioch, and we find that up here. Now, Antioch was about 500 kilometers north of Jerusalem. It was not just a little village or a little town, but this was a full-blown city. They estimate there was around about half a million people who lived in Antioch some estimates as much as 600,000. And if you think of the ancient world, that's a pretty big city. It was actually the third largest city in the whole of the Roman Empire. And Antioch was very much a, a junction of the roads. The roads that came from the east, the roads that came from the south, and the roads that came from the north, they all went through Antioch. So anyone traveling anywhere in this sort of part of the world, they went through Antioch. And as a result, Antioch had diverse cultures There was many gods that people worshipped throughout the city. And it was known for its lack of morality. And this is the situation that some of these believers found themselves in when they fled the persecution and went to Antioch. And so as they went to Phoenicia, as they went to Cyprus, as they went to Antioch, they went there and they spoke primarily and exclusively to the Jews. And they were converting Jews to to learn more about this, this Messiah who died upon the cross and and to learn about the hope that we have as disciples of of Christ. But the believers in Antioch, they did something different. There was a certain group of believers there, from Cyrene and from Cyprus, who said, you know what, we're going to speak not just to the Jews, but we're going to speak also to the Gentiles. And as we're going to discover, the result of this is a thriving, mission-focused, generous, Christ-centered church which eventually became the base for a lot of Paul's missionary endeavors. His first missionary journey, his second missionary journey, his third missionary journey, all began in Antioch. Now the question we're going to unpack first is, who were these people that took on such a large task as converting the pagan people of, of Antioch? Let's go to verse 20. So Acts chapter 11 and verse 20. And this is what it says. It says, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Did you see who it was? What were their names? Any names given? No names given? The truth is we have no idea who these people were, except they were from Cyprus and Cyrene. And I think that's a really important point. If we a bit of revision from Acts chapter 8. We saw that when Stephen was, was killed and there was this great persecution that broke out in the church, it said that there arose on that day a great, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except who? Except the apostles. So these 5,000 missionaries, they were not the educated, they were not the professionals. They're not the big names, the sophisticated people, the, the, the superheroes of, of the, the early church. But these were just ordinary, everyday people, like myself, like yourself. And these are the people that took on this large, diverse, challenging mission field that was Antioch. So how did they achieve this? How did these people achieve taking such a large city for Christ? The answer is in verse 21. It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. What was with them? The hand of the Lord. And that's what this whole series is about. Ordinary people, extraordinary God. Ordinary people can do extraordinary things if the hand of the extraordinary God is with them. And so the first thing... Oh, here, they were just ordinary people with an extraordinary God. The first thing that the church in Antioch was built upon was ordinary people. And you might be wondering, why are they getting, teaching all of these, us how to give Bible studies? Why are they wanting us to come and learn how to lead a small group? Why are they wanting us to do this, 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 and this? Because the early church flourished and grew because the everyday person, everyday church member, realized that they had a part to play in the mission and the growth of, of God's kingdom, and they took hold of that. And today, if we're going to have a church experience like was the church in Acts, we need to take hold of this as well. The church in Antioch was built upon ordinary people. Point number two the church in Antioch was built upon encouragement. Let's read now verse 22. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So you can just imagine the disciples that they're in the church in Jerusalem, and they're, they're debating whether we should, they should accept the Gentiles in, into the church. And, and Peter's just had this great experience with Cornelius. And then word comes to them. Not only is, is the, the gospel being preached to the Gentiles in Antioch, but rather, suddenly this whole church is birthed, and it's booming under the... The, um, the reason it's booming is because all the Gentiles are coming into there, and they're like, whoa, this is... How did this happen? And so what they do, they get Barnabas, a man that we're going to unpack a bit of his story today, and they send Barnabas up to Up to the church there in Antioch. And let's have a look at what Barnabas does when he gets to Antioch. So verse 23, it says, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and exhorted them, or and encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord, With steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus. So Barnabas went to Tarsus and look to look for Saul. Now do you remember how far away Antioch was from Jerusalem? I'll take you back to that. Here we go. How far was it? About five hundred kilometers. Now think about that. How long would that have taken for Barnabas? to go from the church in Jerusalem to Antioch. Well, it's on the coast, so he might have taken a boat. He might have walked it. We don't really know. But if he walked it, I sort of did some calculations, he would have been walking 10 hours a day for 10 days solid to get to Antioch. Has anyone ever done that before? Carl has. (laughs) Fantastic. So he he would understand this. So here we see Barnabas... We don't really know exactly how he, um, how he got there, but it would have been a large journey. He would have been tired. He would have been worn out. This was not just going around the corner. This was completely out of his way. And did you notice what he did when he got there to the church in Antioch? Do you see what he did? He gets there. He sees the work that's going on. He does two things after that. He rejoices and he encourages them. And then, straight afterwards, he goes off to Tarsus looking for Saul. Now, is that a long way to go just to encourage some people? What does that teach us about the importance of encouragement in the church? When was the last time you went out of your way to intentionally encourage someone? Have you ever walked for 10 days solid to encourage someone and then disappear? I don't think I have. But what we learn here is that the church in Antioch was built upon encouragement, and specifically the encouragement of Barnabas. Now, why is encouragement so important in the church? Why is it that we need encouragement? Well, one of the reasons is that ministry can often be discouraging. Has anyone anyone here ever found ministry to be a discouraging experience? Let me give you an example. Saul, remember, Saul, he, he was involved in the killing of Stephen, and then he went to um, Damascus, and on the way he had this incredible conversion experience. Now, after that experience, he stayed for around about three years, and we find this in Galatians, about three years ministering to, him, to the people in Damascus with everything that he had. He probably had all sorts of hardships and challenges, and... But he was doing his part. He was um, doing all that he can to spread the gospel in Damascus. Now, after that three years, he thought, you know what? Maybe I'll go up and I will share. um, I'll go and catch up with the apostles in Jerusalem and have a catch up with them. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. It says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were what? They were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, put yourself in, Paul, in Saul in Saul's shoes. Do you think he would have been discouraged? You've been dedicating the last three years of your life to preaching the gospel in Damascus, and you come to the people who are supposed to be the main part of the group of the church, and they're afraid of you. They turn you away. They say, "Get out of here. We don't believe you. We don't want to have anything to do with you." Now, how would Saul have gone out from that little meeting? Do you think his head was high? I can imagine his head was low. And he's walking out, a sense of shame and guilt, a feeling like his past sins, his past um, actions will never be taken away from him. And I just, would, I just imagine that Saul just sat down in a corner somewhere, utterly and completely discouraged. What happened next? It says, but Barnabas, hang on, where have we seen Barnabas before? He was the one that was encouraging them in, in the church in Antioch. But Barnabas came and he took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now how significant was that little bit of encouragement for, for Saul? It would have meant everything to him. Everyone else pushed him aside but one person, Barnabas, saw him and said, this person Needs to be encouraged. He got down beside him. I'm sure he listened to his story, heard about the experiences that he had in Damascus. And then as a result of that, he takes him back and he builds him back up in the eyes of the apostles. That is what is encouragement. Do we have people like that in our church today? I believe that the more people like that we can have in our church, the more successful our ministry will be here Because instead of being faced with discouragement over and over again, we will be able to build each other up. In fact, I think I've got it. Here we go. The solution to discouragement is what? Encouragement. And in fact, Barnabas was a serial encourager. Okay, And we find that in Acts chapter 4. And did you know Barnabas wasn't actually his real real name? It says in Acts chapter 4 that his real name was Joseph. It says... Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means. Okay, so Barnabas is really his nickname, which means son of encouragement. Do you think people like being around Barnabas? I think they did. Um, and I think our church will be so much more successful. We have more Barnabas's and Barnabas' sets. I don't know really what daughters of encouragement would be. Now, the result of, of Barnabas's. Um, of his ministry is seen in Acts chapter 9 verse 27. So this is remember so so Saul has come to the apostles he's been cast aside he's discouraged Barnabas comes to him encourages him and this is what happens it says but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and spoke to them and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of the Lord and then so he went in and out among them in Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. What was the result of the encouragement? The advancement of the gospel. Encouragement is a complete ministry in, of, in itself. The Bible even says it's one of the spiritual gifts, the gift of encouragement. Let's jump back to Acts chapter 11, and let's see what was the result of Barnabas's encouragement in Acts chapter 11. In verse 23, it says, when he came, so he comes to Antioch after traveling this huge journey, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted or encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. If all you did was encourage people, you could see many people come into the kingdom. I firmly believe that. And so... The church in Antioch was built upon ordinary people, number one. And number two, the church in Antioch was built upon encouragement. Number three, the church in Antioch was built upon suffering. What we're going to learn is that God's work needs people who are willing to endure suffering. People who are willing to endure hardships, willing to endure persecutions because when God has people who are willing to endure suffering, He then has a group of people that He can do all sorts of incredible things with. OK. Now, in fact, Antioch was built upon layers of suffering. Let me explain. What, why were the people there preaching in Antioch in the first place? What had happened? Persecution. They were scattered. They had fled their, their homes, their familiarity, their jobs, the people they knew. They'd fled Jerusalem and they're off in this far distant place escaping persecution. So, layer number one was the persecution. Why were they persecuted? What happened just prior to that? The death of Stephen. Would you call that suffering? Okay, that's, he was actually killed for his faith. Now, why was Stephen willing to die for his faith? Whose example was he following? Jesus. Now, was Jesus' life an example of suffering? On the cross, he was tortured, beaten, crown of thorns put upon his head, spat upon. And so we see that the church in Antioch was built upon layer, upon layer, upon layer of people who experienced hardship. Now, often today, when we think about what sort of ministry am I going to be a part of? What sort of way am I going to serve God? Sometimes, and I find myself asking this as well, we think of, now what would be the most enjoyable thing to be a part of? Or, what fits in with my current way of life? What can I, if you're going to give, um, what can I give that doesn't really affect the rest of my life too much? But is that, do you think that's what was going through the minds of these people in Antioch? They weren't thinking what's the minimum that I can go without saying, what is God calling me to? What is the mission that God has put before me? And how do we take hold of that with everything that we have? Now, the, uh, the missionaries that went to Antioch, they were not unique in this. In fact, if we go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36, Hebrews chapter 11 is basically the hall of faith. These are the, the movers and shakers of salvation history, basically, throughout the Bible. And th- I just want to give you a snapshot of some of the lives of the people that the the author of Hebrews presents as men of faith to imitate. It says, "...others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth." Was the church built upon layers of suffering? Challenging message, isn't it? Are we people who are willing to have this same sort of an attitude to the work that God has put before us? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What was it that drove these people to endure such suffering? I believe that there was two things. There's probably many other things as well, but at least two things. One of them, they looked back to what Jesus had done for them. And when they saw the cross and they saw how much Jesus had suffered for them, they said, "What I'm got, what's before me is nothing in comparison. And secondly, they look forward to the hope that we have in Jesus. And they look forward to eternity. When they looked at what we have to gain, they said any price that we pay in this life is so little in comparison. And so they looked back to what Jesus had done and they looked forward to to what was the hope that they had. Now, while the church was built upon suffering, one thing that we learn in the book of, in the, in the ministry to Antioch is that God is always in control. Satan might throw all sorts of things at the church, but God is always in control. Let me show you how this took place in this situation. Satan's attempt to destroy the, the church went like this. Satan uses Saul to kill Stephen to start a persecution to destroy the church. Does that sound like the last few chapters of the book of Acts. Saul killed Stephen, started persecution to destroy the church. Now, what was God's plan? God uses Stephen to convert Saul. And then he uses the persecution to what? Start new churches. Is that pretty cool? But I guess it's even more than this. Check out this. Then God uses Saul, who was the agent of Satan. And Saul becomes God's agent to minister to those new churches that he accidentally started. Satan's strategies to stop the church are God's strategies to spread the church. And so while the church is always going to be built upon layers of suffering, what we can always remember is is that God is in control. Point number four. The church at Antioch was built upon ordinary people, encouragement, suffering and, fourthly, generosity let's read verse 27 to 30 this will take us to the end of the chapter it says now in these days prophets came down from jerusalem to antioch and one of them named agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world and this took place in the days of claudius so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in judea And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. What we learn here is that the church in Antioch was characterized by a radical generosity to those people in need around them. Can you imagine if there was a prophet who came up here and stood up in front of church and said, there's going to be a great famine that's going to affect people all over the entire world. What would we do? We'd probably kick him out. I don't don't know what we would do. But here we see this person knows this. Agabus comes from Jerusalem to Antioch and he says there's this terrible famine that's going to come to all of the world. Now if it's going to all of the world, who does that also include? The Christians in Antioch. So this is, is not just news about people out there, but this is news about what's going to happen to them. And do you notice what the first thing was that they thought of? Did they think, how are we going to survive through this famine? How are we going to stockpile enough stuff for ourselves so that we can get through this? Is that what they thought? No, they didn't. Their first thought was, how do we get enough means together so that we can support our neighboring churches throughout Judea? The church in Antioch was built upon a radical generosity. Now, I believe that the test of a generous person is is how they respond, what is their first response in time of crisis? Do they think about the people around them that are suffering, or do they think, how is this going to affect me? I remember when I was um, over in Egypt, I had been there with three of my best friends, and we'd been doing a, a preaching program in this school in, in, in Egypt. And at the end of it, we got back to the missionary house, and the lady who was one of the, the missionary ladies, came there and said, quick, check your stuff. Someone's broken into the place and been robbed. Now, what do you think I did? I walked straight past her. I walked straight past my friend's Ben's stuff. I walked straight past my friend Lachlan's gear and went straight to where all my luggage was in, the, on the other, in my room. And I looked around and said, oh, laptop stolen. my That's the main thing. Well, I have insurance, so it's maybe not too bad, but and it's backed up. But I went straight to my stuff. Meanwhile, my friend Ben had his passport stolen, his wallet stolen, his hard drive stolen, and we had flights at 6am the next morning to get back to Australia. But the thing that stands out to me after reading through this about the Church of Antioch was when crisis hit, did they run straight to their own luggage and see what was stolen? Their first inclination, their first thought was to, to... to look around them and think, how are we able to help and support those people who are in need? And so it says, Everyone gave as they were able, and they did so, and they sent relief by the hands of Barnabas and of Saul. Now, where did they learn such radical generosity? Well, maybe they learned it from what was happening in the church in Jerusalem from where they fled from. This is what it says. It says, there was not a needy person among them. Can you imagine a church community where there was not a needy person among them? There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles, who's this? Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought that money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So where did they learn this sort of radical generosity? Well, they might have learned it from what was happening in Jerusalem and also from this man that we see here, Barnabas. And that shows us that this same sort of radical generosity is contagious. And if we take it upon ourselves, it will spread to the people around us as well. Generosity. So the church at Antioch was built upon ordinary people, encouragement, suffering, generosity, and finally it was built upon Christ. Now how do we know that this was a thoroughly Christ-centered church? Well, there's two clues that we've already skimmed across, and we're going to go back to them now. The first one is in verse 21, and it says this. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed. Turn, verse 20, sorry. But they, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antio- Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching what? What did they preach? The Lord Jesus. When they came there, their message was not that there's a famine coming. Their message was not Jesus is coming. Their message is not all these other things, but it was a person. Their message was thoroughly the person of Jesus Christ. All those other things were important, so long as they were pictures that revealed the true beauty of their person, their Savior, who died upon the cross. So their message was thoroughly Christ-centered. Now there's another reason that we know that these people were thoroughly Christ-centered. And that is found in verse 26. It says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. This is Saul, brought to Antioch. For a whole year they met there with the church and taught a great many people. And then this final sentence says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called what? Christians. Have you ever wondered where the term Christian came from? From. Well, it came from the church in Antioch. Now, did you notice that it said they were called Christians? They did not... It doesn't say they called themselves Christians, or they assumed this name upon themselves, but rather they were called Christians. And it seems that, and many commentators agree that that it seems that it was the surrounding people, the people outside of them from this huge city and um, this this immoral, this pagan city that were calling them Christians. Basically, Christ people. Now, what would have caused them to call these people Christ people, Christians, followers of Christ? Could it have been that they had a, a radically... Christ-centered message and a radically Christ-centered life. It's challenging for me because people, and for all of us, I believe, at our workplace, amongst our friends in our family, at school, how do people see us? If people think of us, do they think, oh, that's Jared who plays the saxophone, or that's Jared who does this, or that's Jared who does this career, or that's Jared who eats something strange. Or that's Jared who does dot, 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 dot. Or do they think that's Jared who's absolutely obsessed with Jesus? And that's kind of what was going on here. These people were thoroughly Jesus-centered, thoroughly Christ-centered. Everything they did was them revealing to the people around them Jesus. And as a result, they get the name, the nickname really was, which became something they began to hold dear to themselves, Christians. Now, one of the people, a final verse that we're going to look at, Saul was there preaching. He was a part of the Antioch church, and he describes his obsession with Christ in this way. He says, this is in a later letter writing to the church in Corinth, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Is that the message of our life? Christ was there, everything. Easy house.